Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 18. When you think about the greatest, what, what is it that you, what comes to mind? Um, probably for many of us, we kind of automatically go to like competitive things or, or athletes or things like that. Um, but if I were to ask you in your mind, who, who's the greatest American president that we've ever had? Um, rhetorical question, don't answer. <laughs> Should have started with that. Uh, probably debatable, right, to, to who's the greatest president, but, but you, might, you might think of Mount Rushmore and, and the men that are represented on Mount Rushmore. There's a reason that they got their faces carved into a rock. What about when I ask you who is the greatest NFL quarterback? A few names probably come to mind pretty immediately. Montana, Elway, Manning. What about the greatest soccer player? Yeah, nobody cares about soccer, right? <laughs> um, how about the greatest Olympic athlete? Who do, you, who do you think of? Do you think of a man like Michael Phelps, who, who's the most decorated American Olympic athlete? Uh, do you think about our own local hero, uh, Ashton Eaton? Uh, how about uh, maybe something that might be a little less debatable? Uh, who's the greatest NBA player of all time? There's probably two names that come to mind, but only one right answer. Michael, <laughs> My, Michael Jordan, right? Un, unquestionable. And maybe even more unquestionable, who's the greatest professional boxer of all time? The one who proclaimed himself to be the greatest, right? And, and he, he probably was, right, the greatest boxer, Muhammad Ali. How about the greatest American entrepreneur? Maybe there's some names that come to mind. Maybe some guys that have long left this world, Rockefeller or Astor. Maybe uh, somebody who's still alive and still uh, innovating, Musk, that name might come to mind about what, make, what makes a great human being? What, what do you think of when you think of just somebody that you know in your life who you would say uh, is a great person? Who, who comes to your mind? What about the greatest Bible character? This one maybe could be, I mean, Jesus aside, or he's obviously the greatest Bible character, but aside from Jesus, who, who do you think of? Do you think of Moses? Do you think of Abraham? Do you think of Jacob? Do you think of Paul? What about... The greatest pastor that you can think of. Don't have to answer that. We, we know nobody has favorites, right? What about a Christian? What, what makes a great Christian? Does, does somebody come to your mind when you, when you think of just their faith and the way that they represent God in this world, uh, and you think they're, they're a really great Christian? I have a few people that come to my mind in that, hoping for being one of them. As we open Matthew chapter 18, Jesus' disciples ask him this question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And if you think about who Jesus is and you think about who his disciples are, it's kind of a silly question, isn't it? And if you think about all all that we've seen in the book of Matthew up to this point in the first 17 chapters, all of the things that we've seen Jesus do, miracle after miracle, and even just immediately before this, we see his transfiguration. Not all the disciples were privy to that, but a few of the disciples got to witness that firsthand. And it's really kind of remarkable that the disciples would have the audacity to ask, who's the greatest in the kingdom? In reality, it's not just a bad question to ask. It really is the wrong question to ask altogether. 
Have you ever thought about how, how Jesus defines greatness? Think about the way that Jesus lived, and, and he, he shows us in his life what true greatness is. Jesus' greatness had to do with, with humble beginnings, right? God stepped into human flesh and, and came to this earth to those he created as a baby, born in humble circumstances in, in a barn around a bunch of smelly animals. And for a period in his life, had to be cared for by his mother. Right? Had, had to be reared just like any child. The king of the universe, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, stepped into human flesh in humility. And he came on a rescue mission to, to save humanity, not, not by taking names, not, not with a sword, but in humility. And that, that right there, like if we just stopped right there, that would tell us something about what greatness is in God's economy. Just by the simple fact of, of who Jesus is, how he came to this earth, how he lived, the people that he spent time with. Right? Jesus didn't come to spend time with the somebodies of the world. Jesus spent his time with the nobodies of the world. Right? Even that tells us a little bit about what greatness is according to God. So his disciples ask him really this wrong question altogether, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 2, Jesus called to himself a child, and he put this child in the midst of them, and he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not like Muhammad Ali who proclaims himself to be the greatest. That The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not the one that has the most success, that wins competitions, that wins victories. That The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is, is not the best leader of them all, not the most domineering or assertive person. But Jesus tells us that the greatest in the kingdom, he likens it to a child and he likens it to uh, humility. And so in this just simple statement of Jesus calling to him a child and saying that unless you turn and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, there, there's some implications here. When Jesus says, unless you turn, there's an assumption that Jesus is making in this statement that we have a default position of opposition to the kingdom of God. It's our default position. The Bible tells us that, that we come into this world in opposition to God. We come into this world riddled in sin, and then there's a problem right out of the gate for all of us. And so Jesus is making this assumption that, that we have this default position that's against the kingdom of God. And for Jesus, it's not really an assumption. He's making a definitive statement in saying this. And so there's a turn that's required. There's a change that's required in order for any of us to enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless you turn from this default position of opposition to God and His kingdom and become like children, so there, there's even an, an assumption in that statement that, that there's a transformation that is required for all of us before we can attain the kingdom of heaven. So we have this default position that's against God and His kingdom, and there's a change, or we might say a regeneration, that's required in order for us to access the kingdom of heaven. He tells us that unless these things happen, unless there's a turning and unless there's a changing, he says you will never 
enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, a definitive statement from Jesus. He's not saying that it's going to be more difficult for you to enter the kingdom of heaven if these things don't happen. He's saying definitively you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless there's a turning and a changing that happens. One commentator had this to say. They, speaking of the disciples, assumed that they were in the kingdom. In other words, the saved community under Christ's kingship. And thus, their only concern was greatness. How many diadems will be in my crown compared to his and his and his? But Jesus turns the table on them. He says, in essence, what you should be worried about with such an attitude as expressed in your question is whether you are in the kingdom or not. Big-headed people can't fit through a narrow gate. And we're told in the Bible that, that wide is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life, and, and there are not many that are on it. And so, <clears throat> default position, we're in opposition to God and His kingdom. There's a turning, a changing, a regeneration that's required that we would become like children. And what I don't think Jesus is saying here, like I don't think He has in view when He says that we must become like children, I don't think He has in view just a childlike wonder. Right? Sometimes we will go there in this, this passage or other passages like it, that, that we should have this childlike wonder and amazement at who God is. And we certainly should, but I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. More on that in a moment. I think about Jesus' conversation with a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, right? comes, comes to Jesus in secret because he didn't want it to be known that he was seeking out Jesus. And Jesus, in this conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, starting in verse 3, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And, and, and so Jesus is maybe using a little bit of hyperbole here, and, and Nicodemus isn't quite getting what Jesus is laying down when he tells him that he needs to be born again. Nicodemus is thinking that Jesus is talking about a physical rebirth. He's like, as an adult man, it seems kind of silly, like, can I get back into my mother's womb and be born again? Of course not. That, that's, that's a silly notion, and that's an impossibility. But Jesus, Jesus is getting at something much bigger here. He's not saying that you need to be born again of the flesh. Your first birth in the flesh was problematic in that you, were in, you entered into a sinful world with a sinful heart. That's the birth of the flesh. Again, our default position is in op- opposition to the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that you have to be born again, not in the flesh, but that you have to be born again spiritually, that we all must have this spiritual rebirth. So when Jesus in Matthew 18 is telling His disciples that you must become like this child, I, I think this is what He's alluding to, is this spiritual rebirth that we all are in desperate need of. Every single one of us has been born of the flesh because we're, we're here, right? We're sitting here physically present in this room. I don't know if all of us have been born again of the Spirit. I hope that we've all been born again of the Spirit and experienced this rebirth that Jesus 
is talking about. A little bit later in John chapter 3, down in verse 36, Jesus makes this comment. And this is, this is a bit of a harsh comment, a harsh reality. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. All well and good. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Again, this kind of default position that we're under God's wrath because we're in opposition to his kingdom as a result of our fleshly birth. There, there is no human being that's, that's born of the flesh that is not right out of the gate by default in opposition to God. Sometimes we struggle to understand that as Christians. But the Bible paints this picture that, that without God's intervention, we're, we're all in trouble. We're all in trouble. And so here's Jesus telling his disciples in Matthew chapter 18, saying that, that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, in order to, to not be in opposition to the kingdom of God, something has to happen. One, you have to realize you're in opposition to God. Two, upon the realization that you're in opposition to God, there's a turning that's required. The Bible calls that repentance. Right? Turning from sin, recognizing your sin and turning the opposite direction from your sin in faith and in humility. The Bible tells us that there's a day that's going to come when all of humanity will be humbled before God. All of humanity will be humbled before God. All of humanity will recognize the Lordship of Christ, willingly or unwillingly. That day's coming. We, we know that. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess who is the greatest. And, and there's going to be no debate on that day about who the greatest is. Everybody will know the answer that the greatest in the kingdom of God, the greatest in the entirety of the cosmos is Jesus. It's to our advantage that we come to that conclusion sooner rather than later. Jesus says that you must become like this child. He's using an object lesson in this moment. Pulls a child out there and uh, says that this is what you've got to be like again. I don't think Jesus is talking about just childlike wonder. It's important to understand that in the first century, um, children were not necessarily all that celebrated. No, nobody hated children, but, but children weren't necessarily celebrated in the first century. Children were really not considered all that useful until they got to an age where maybe they could work the farm, right? help, help dad out. Up to that point, they, children were just considered kind of a burden, Right, needed to be cared for, uh, those, those kinds of things. They, they needed to be taught, they needed to be reared, they were dependent upon their parents for all of their needs to be met. I, I think it's something more along these lines as to what Jesus is alluding to here when he, when he calls his disciples to be like a child. Do, do you realize that you have a need outside of yourself? Do, do you realize that you have a need that's so great that you can't meet it on your own? Do you realize that? Children don't often realize that, but, but we all know, right, all of us that have raised kids, you know that, that kids have needs that are greater than themselves, that are beyond themselves, that can only be met by their parents. Again, I think this is what Jesus is getting at. He's telling us, reminding us that we're at a deficit. Even as adults in this room, right, we... we those who have come to Christ, we're children of 
God. Right? We have a heavenly Father. We have a heavenly Father because we have a deficit as human beings. Not, not just as little kids, but as human beings, we have a deficit. And the only way to make up this deficit is to realize that we need things that only He can give. We, we have needs that can only be met by our Heavenly Father. Namely, the forgiveness of sins. Right? We, we can't do anything to affect that apart from our Heavenly Father. To be a Christian is to be a child of God the Father, to be cared for by Him, to be disciplined by Him, to be taught by Him, to depend upon Him, to look to God in humble faith for all of our needs to be met in Him. I think this is what Jesus means when He says you must become like this child. Now, included in that would be a childlike wonder that that God would do anything for us. Do you ever just sit and think about all of the things that God has done for you and, and, and are, are you just not amazed that, that God puts up with you and that He puts up with me? You, you don't know the thoughts that go through my head. You only know what comes out of my mouth. But, but God knows the thoughts that go through my head and He puts up with me. <laughs> He's patient with me. He's gracious with me. Even yesterday as I'm thinking about all this, I'm I'm wrestling in my head just with thoughts that weren't good throughout the day because of something else happening in life. And and God God puts up with it. God God puts up with even the horrible thoughts that that you might be shocked to know that run through my head. I'm guessing the same thing happens to you. And He puts up with us. And so if we think about all of this, again, we go back to this question about who is the greatest? Does it not seem like more silly of a question than it did in the beginning? Really. Silly question, wrong question. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Greatness in God's kingdom isn't about competition. right? It's not about memorizing more Bible verses. It's not about having a more moral life than the next person or a more virtuous life than the next person. That's not greatness in the kingdom of God. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not about achievement. It's not about how many Sundays in a row that you make it to church, but hopefully you make all of them in a row. right? But, but that, that doesn't equate to greatness in the kingdom of God. Greatness in the kingdom of God is about realizing the human condition in which we all share our deficit, our extreme deficit, the Bible calls it depravity. Right? We're, we're, we're so in bondage to sin that we are a depraved people, and that's bad news. But the good news is that there's a divine offer of righteousness that requires our repentance and believing in faith that we can be spiritually born again through Jesus' work. That's the good news. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one that realizes that he or she is not great at all. And that there's only one greatest. And the one greatest is Jesus Christ. That's the greatest in the kingdom. I was thinking about hope. Actually, last night I read her Facebook post and just pondered on it for a while. And here's a young woman in, in her suffering, 
in her extreme suffering, suffering that you and I probably will never know, and has used that suffering to point people to Christ. That's one of the greatest in the kingdom. Nobody would blame her if she had Facebook post after post saying, oh, woe is me. This stinks. Nobody would blame her. But instead, she uses her suffering to point people to Christ. One of the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus showed us by example what greatness is. We read in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this starting in verse 1, that if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So all of you unify around this thought. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So so we see right here encapsulated in Jesus what greatness is. Greatness in God's economy, greatness by His standard is humility, not conceit. Greatness in, in God's standard is considering others better than yourself, not considering yourself the best person that you know. And if you're anything like me, most days I'm the best person I know. I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but you, you might be shocked to know how true that statement is. Most days I'm the best person I know. That's not the way of Christ. Consider others better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. That's a hard thing. My interests are way more important than yours. And if it comes down to having to choose between my interests and your interests, you know what I'm going to choose most days? My, my interest, you, just, you probably would too. Not the way of Christ. And it's not enough just that Paul said that. He, he shows us that Christ, those equal with God for a time, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's not to say that he set aside his deity. He, that, that's, not, that's not true. But Paul's making a point here that Christ in humility stepped into human flesh and subjected himself to the humans that he created, willingly let his own creation revolt against him and kill him. All to achieve something. Not not that he was a glutton for punishment, but this was all to achieve something. He humbled himself in obedience to the will of the Father to die on a cross and to take upon himself all of the sins of humanity, past, present, future, did so willingly in what seemed like, in the moment, a great loss. 
right? We, we on this side of the cross can look back knowing what we know, having our scripture. We, we know that it wasn't a loss. But can you imagine Jesus' disciples in, in, like in the day? Can you imagine being there when that happened? How much of a defeat that must have seemed like? It must have seemed like the defeat of all defeats. But it wasn't. Jesus showed his greatness by seemingly losing. Even that, like if we just left that statement by itself, that that should inform the way that we Christians interact in the world. Jesus won a great victory by a seeming loss. And as a result of that, we're told that God has highly exalted him, that God has, has made what seemed like the loser of losers to be the greatest of the greats. So much so that this day is coming that I already mentioned that, that, that everybody in the entirety of creation is going to recognize without a question who the greatest is. And it's Jesus Christ. And every tongue will confess that. Every knee will bow acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord and it will be a glorious thing when that happens. Now, if all of this is true, and a little bit of spoiler for what's to come in the rest of the chapter, the rest of Matthew 18, Jesus is telling us, he's making a statement here about who, who we are and about who he is and, and what it is to, to attain the kingdom of God. The rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to talk to us about dealing with our own sin and dealing with the sin of others and how big of a deal it really is. But, but think about it, if all of this is true, if all of this is true, if all of this really matters, what he goes into next in verse 5 of Matthew 18 is to talk about the greatness of sin. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. A little harsh statement there from Jesus. And again, what's he, what's he talking about? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What, what is it that he's getting at here? I, again, I don't, I don't think he's getting at necessarily that we should be kind to kids, although we should, right? The Bible can back that up, but, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think he's saying only that we should be kind to children, Right? We, we place an emphasis on children. Children are to be celebrated. Children are a gift from God. But he's saying more right here than like just be nice to kids. He's saying much more than that. Remember, before when he said you must become like this child, right? We're, we're all children of God. We, we are all children, even though we're adults. Right? You're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. You're still a child of God. And so when he's saying whoever receives one such child, I think he's talking about Christians, other children of God, right? Whoever receives one such child or who receives other children of God, whoever receives those who have been born again spiritually, whoever receives those who who have the same need that you do to be born again, whoever receives one who is part of your family as a child of God. I think that's what he's saying here. We all have this equal need for deliverance from sin and death. We're, kind of, we're equal that way. It's been said 
I think by many a pastor that there's no such thing as uneven ground at the foot of the cross, right? We're, we're all level in that we have this need that only Jesus can provide. We, we have this need for deliverance from sin and forgiveness of sin that can only come from Christ. And so if that's true, what, what does that mean for the way that you interact with other Christians? If we're all in the same conundrum, sinners on a crash course to death, according to Ephesians chapter 2, if that's true of all of us, well, what does that mean in how you treat your fellow Christian? Right? There, there, there's no animosity at the foot of the cross. There's no tension between people at the foot of the cross. Another pastor once used the analogy of being a beggar, a simple beggar, showing other beggars where to find the bread. Right? I love that. We're just beggars trying to show other beggars where to find the bread, the bread of life who is Jesus Christ. That's the way of the Christian. According to the Bible. But so often in our churches, and I think we're very blessed in this church that I don't, we have very little tension, but but I've been in churches in the past where there's just tension between people. There's animosity between people. It's not the way of the Christian. So when Jesus is saying, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, I think that he's saying that as you receive one another in your sinful depravity, and you do so with kindness and humility, according to the way of Christ, considering others better than yourself, building up and not tearing down, that when you do that for one another, that you actually receive Christ in doing that. That's the good news. Verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. It just got real <laughs> with that statement. That, that's, that's, a big, that's a big deal. Everything we do as Christians either points people to Christ or draws them away from Christ. Everything. Everything we do as Christians. Every interaction that we have with anybody in the world, the way that we do our jobs, the, the way that we act when we go to the grocery store, everything that we do as Christians has the ability to either point people to Christ or to draw them away from Christ. And, and, and I think about just our current cultural moment and the way that Christians have engaged in the culture wars. Now, I'm not an advocate that would say Christians don't need to be in the culture wars at all. I, I think we should. But, but the way that we approach the culture wars needs some serious, serious work. <laughs> Big time. Especially on social media, it, it's so easy to sit behind a keyboard and be a jerk and not even care about it. And I see, I see Christians do it every day. And in their interactions with the world, they're, they're actually knowingly or unknowingly pushing people away from Christ in the way that they engage in the culture wars. Again, if I, I think of somebody like Hope who is engaged culture and her suffering and has, has drawn people to Christ in her suffering. That, that's the way of Christ. That, that's the way of the Christian. Do, do you think about 
on a daily basis, even a moment-by-moment basis, that whatever you're saying and whatever you're doing is either going to, it's going to inform people of something of Christ, good or bad, right or wrong. Every interaction that you have, it's a big deal. And we have in Christian culture, we have this so backwards right now. We're, we're trying to engage the culture by and large by fighting fire with fire, and that's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is humble service. And it seems so backwards. It seems so backwards to engage the culture the way that Jesus engaged the culture, but we have the example of what He did. And if we take on the name Christian, right, which means little Christ, then, then we, ought to, we ought to resemble the Christ in some way, right? It, it only makes sense. Christians ought to resemble the Christ in the way that they engage culture. And what Jesus is saying here is that, that when you receive children of God, when you receive other Christians in His name, you actually receive Him. But when you cause another child of God to sin because of your behavior, you should have a millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Like it's a big deal that we cause other people to sin. And again, in the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to, he's going to talk to us a lot about how we deal with sin, how we deal with our own sin, how we deal with sin within the flock and how we deal with the sin of others. Right, so we're we're going to be we're going to camp out here for a little bit and talk about these things, but it's it's a big deal. For today, I would just ask you to consider, as you engage in a culture and even a culture that's becoming more and more hostile to Christianity, that you would consider the way that Jesus engaged the culture of his day, who was also hostile to him, and that we would not necessarily fight fire with fire. Right? The way of Christ is not necessarily uh, to seek out elected office and to effect change that way. I, I hope that there are Christians that do seek elected office, and I hope that there are Christians that use their abilities to effect change, but, but we don't see Jesus doing that. We, we don't see Jesus winning by sitting in the biggest chair and, and, and swinging the biggest bat. We don't see Jesus winning that way. We don't see Jesus winning or having success by asserting His dominance. Jesus is the most dominant force in the, in the entirety of the universe. And if there's anybody that could assert His dominance, it would be Him. But Jesus doesn't win by asserting His dominance. Jesus didn't win by competing to have victory, at least not in the way that we would normally think of victory. The way that we would normally think of victory is if Jesus were able to not go to the cross, like if you were able to win that battle and not die. Jesus didn't work to defeat His enemies, not, not the way that we would think to defeat our enemies. Right? We defeat our enemies by going to war, and war is a terrible thing. But we defeat our enemies by going to war, and we have bigger guns and bigger tanks and bigger jets. Right? That's how you win wars. That's not how Jesus won the ultimate war. It may seem intuitive to us to fight fire with fire, but it's so backwards from how Jesus lived. And I would just, again, simply ask you to consider the way of Jesus and how that might inform the way that you live in the world.
And maybe to, to boil this down and, and simplify this point just a bit, there's a lot of weird Christians out there, and there's a lot of Christians that are jerks. And I think the Bible would say, don't be weird and don't be a jerk. Right? Don't, don't do that. Don't go out in the world and, and be weird. Don't go out in the world and be the moral police pointing out how everybody's wrong. Don't do that. It doesn't say anything for who Christ is. Don't go out into the world and be superior because you're morally better than everybody else or because you have this higher standard than everybody else. Jesus didn't do that. If anybody had the right to show up at the earth and say, you're all wrong, get it together, it would have been Jesus. He didn't do that. Jesus engaged a hostile culture with humility, with patience, with service, with grace, with mercy. These things are the way of Christ. Jesus didn't even show up on scene to try and reform society. Seems like that would be a good thing, right? Our society is sure in need of reformation, isn't it? And if there's anybody that could have reformed society, it would have been Jesus. But He didn't show up to set everybody straight to reform society. Jesus didn't show up to defy tyrants. Seems like a good thing that we would defy tyranny, right? Seems, seems like a noble thing to defy tyranny. And I'm not even saying that there, that there may not be a time or a place for that, but, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus allowed Himself to be wronged. Jesus didn't even show up to make bad people better. I think sometimes we think of Christianity as something that makes bad people better, and, and, it, and it does at least that, but that's not, that's not the crux of Christianity. Jesus didn't show up on a mission solely to make bad people better. Jesus showed up to call the bad people to Him and to call them to repentance and to call them to faith, and He did so with humility, not with force. Jesus came to to reclaim His children, those whom He had already created, those whom already, in a sense, belonged to Him because He made them, right? He made us all. We we all bear the image and the likeness of God, Christian and unchristian. That's why we ought to have this attitude of, of beggars being beggars, showing other beggars where the bread is, right? That, that, that's, that's humility that comes from knowing Christ. And we see it in His example. And so as we, again, think about our interactions with one another, it, it's a terrible thing to cause another child of God to sin because of how we interact with one another. And there's a lot that can be said on that, and I'm just going to leave that point there for today, and again, just ask you to consider the way that you interact with one another, and that, that we would have a goal always to build up and never to tear down. We're, we're pretty quick as Christians to be offended. Right? I've said many times before, Christians seem to be some of the most offendable people in the world, <laughs> not the way of Christ. And so before we would get offended, in particular, at another Christian for their behavior, maybe we ought to consider Christ's humility, Christ's service, how we might be able to build up rather than to tear down. And these are hard, these are hard words, and I get it because sometimes our, our default is offense and our default is 
to point the finger and our default sometimes can even be to tear down. And again, those things are not the way of Christ. So to sum it up, we're all, we're all children of God. Every single one of us. We all have the same deficit of sin in our lives. We all have the same need that only Christ can provide the solution for. We all have that same need. So we're all on level ground and there's no reason for us to look at one another in any other way than somebody who Christ has saved. And it says something to the world about how Christians interact with one another. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us in John that that there's one defining way that the world will know who the followers of Christ are. Do you remember what it is? It's by the way they love one another. The world's going to look into the church and is going to see Christians acting like Christians towards one another and they're going to say, oh, yeah, there's where all the Christians are. And you know how I know that? Because they love one another. Because they care about one another. Because they serve one another. Because that group of Christians Christians over there, you know what? They, They look like the Christ. That's how the world is to know who the followers of Christ are when, when Christians look like Christ. And so I would just again ask you to consider uh, your own interactions in the world, both with Christians and non-Christians, and how in those interactions that you can either tell, something, tell people something good about Christ or you can turn them off to Christ in the way that you interact. And, and consider that and ask, ask God every day. Help me to point people to Christ every day. On my bad days especially, but even on, even on the good days, right? We, we need Him on our good days as well. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning. Um, thankful that we can be called children of God. That's not a, not a small thing. And so we're thankful uh, that you love us enough, that you put up with us in our sin, uh, that you have made a way for us uh, to be known by you, uh, that you've made a way for redemption to take effect in our lives. And so I do pray that you would help us all, um, as in Jesus' example today, to be like children in that we realize that you are our Father and that we do have needs that are greater than our, ourselves, that you provide uh, the solutions to those needs, and that you would help us uh, each day to draw more and more close to you. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.